0: This morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. I've entitled this message, The Exaltation of the Son. Last Sunday we began to look at this magnificent passage in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11, which I said last Sunday and I say again today is one of the greatest passages ever written about the Son of God. And I shared with you that many Bible scholars believe that these verses were an early hymn sung by the followers of Christ to celebrate both the incarnation and the exaltation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, our focus was on the first four verses describing the incarnation, and today we will focus on the last three verses. Describing the exaltation of the Son. So if you're able to stand, I'd like you to stand for the reading of our text. I'm going to be reading Philippians 2 starting in verse 5 down through verse 11. Here is God's word to us. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. This brief but very profound text is one of the fullest and most explicit descriptions in the entire New Testament regarding the identity of our Redeemer and Lord, describing what He did and what the result was. John MacArthur, in his commentary, states, No passage of scripture more beautifully portrays the depth of condescension and the height of exaltation experienced by the son of God we learned last Sunday that as profound as this passage is theologically it's also ethical and practical in what it teaches us We learn that it is primarily designed to motivate Christians, like you and I, to think and live as our Lord did. What Paul is doing here is he is presenting to us the supreme example of humility to serve as the most powerful motive for us as Christians to humble ourselves. The humility of the very Son of God calls all believers to follow His example. His example of self denial, self giving, self sacrifice, and selfless love. Remember that the goal of this passage is spiritual unity in the church. Verse 5 serves as the transition from Paul's earlier exhortations in the previous verses to the supreme example or illustration of how this is to be done. Paul's goal is stated in verses 3 and 4. He wants the example of Christ to motivate us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the goal because such humility will result in unity, which is what Paul wants to see in the church in Philippi, in all the churches And in this church. So, Paul wants his readers to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, verse 5. He wants us to follow Christ's example of love, humility, and sacrifice for the sake of others. So, last Sunday from our text, we learned who the Son is. He is God. Amen? Look at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form, Morphe in the Greek, of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If the Son is equal to the Father, and the Father is God, then the Son is God. Because only God can be equal to God. So we learn that the Son who became a man, was and is God, fully God. What the Son became, He became a human being. He took on human form and substance. He became a true man, although a sinless man. We see that in verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, morphe again, verse 8, and then we saw how the son humbled himself, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, what an understatement that is, I mean, He humbled himself, first of all, by leaving his exalted position in heaven where he was being worshipped by the angelic beings. And he's born in a stable in Bethlehem. You know, into a carpenter's family. Right? I mean, just becoming a human infant, you would say, isn't that humbling enough? But that was only the beginning He humbled himself throughout his life. The Son of God. Even when he began his earthly ministry, he was humble, he was gentle, he was lowly. Most of the time. But he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus knew why he had come. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all in the world who believe and trust in him. If you've believed in Jesus Christ and you've trusted in him for your salvation, then your sins are forgiven. All who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation shall be saved. So today we look at the final three verses of this text, which focus on the results of the incarnation and the humility of Christ. And that result was his exaltation by the Father. And we will see this in his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement, and his reign. And then we'll look at the application for us. So the exaltation of the Son begins with His resurrection. Look again at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. The therefore refers back to the incarnation, the obedience, the humility of the Son, including obedience in dying upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and to defeat the one who has power of sin, Satan. All of the men were at the men's breakfast yesterday. You heard that message that Jesus came as a king to defeat his enemy and our enemy. And he did so. Amen? He defeated the one who has the power of sin, which is death. So the exaltation of the Son by the Father begins with His resurrection from the dead. It is important to see the connection between the efficacy of the death of Christ for our sin and the truth of His subsequent resurrection. If Christ's death deals with our sin, then why does it matter if He rises from the dead again? Good question. And to see the answer, I want you to consider with me two features of sin. Again, this will be a review for you men that were at the breakfast yesterday. Sin is for all of us a two-fold problem. Sin presents us with a penalty that we cannot pay and a power that we cannot overcome. Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages or penalty of sin is death. And we were reminded of that this week with two individuals connected to our church dying because of sin. Death is the result of sin entering God's creation. And the penalty of sin is death. This is also the power that sin has over us, a power we cannot overcome, death. So if Christ died for our sin and sin to us is both a penalty we cannot pay and a power we cannot overcome, then Christ's death for our sin must both pay the penalty and conquer sin's power. So what is the necessary expression that Christ has both conquered the power and penalty of sin? He would rise from the dead. And he did. Amen? Amen. And this shows that the penalty for our sins, death, has been fully paid. And that the power of sin, death, has been defeated. Death could not hold him nor can it hold us if we are in Christ. His resurrection proves once and for all that he has conquered both sin and death for all who trust in him for their salvation. In Jesus, in the God-man, we see that God as man has died for our sins and likewise God as man has been raised from the dead. The atoning death of Christ required that he be a human being and the resurrection of Christ requires the same. He was raised from the dead in a glorified human body in which he will remain forever. One other important connection of the humanity of Christ to his resurrection bears mentioning. The Bible's teaching of the doctrine of resurrection applies to all of us who trust in Christ as well. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. Let me read that to you. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Christ is the firstfruits of those who have died. So just as all die, so also in Christ, all who have trusted in Him will one day share in the resurrection of our bodies. We too will be given glorified human bodies. We too will be made like Him. As Christ was raised, so shall we be raised. And so our hope is rooted in the resurrection of Christ from the dead but his exaltation did not stop there as glorious as that was no God highly exalted him and the next step in that exaltation of the son was his ascension into heaven all four gospels tell us of the resurrection of Jesus and his appearing to many of his followers Many times over a period of 40 days after his resurrection. Mark and Luke also record for us his bodily ascension into heaven. And Luke goes even further, details at the beginning of the book of Acts. So I want to read to you from Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. So this is an eyewitness account of the ascension of Jesus in His glorified body into the heavens. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Jesus said to them, You will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two mids stood by them in white robes. We know these aren't just mere men because mere men don't just suddenly appear. These are angels. And said, men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Praise be to God. If any of us had been there that day, we'd have been staring up into heaven as well. And our mouths would have been open and our eyes would have been that big around, right? As we see Jesus ascending up, 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 up through the clouds, right? We wouldn't have even notice the angels. And they say, what are you guys doing? Staring up into heaven. There's work to be done. It's interesting here that the Greek verb used here, which is translated lifted up, is in the passive voice. What does that mean? That means that Jesus was lifted up by someone else or someone else. He didn't lift himself up. He was lifted up by God the Father. And he was received into a cloud. Why a cloud? Because in Scripture, the cloud often represents the divine presence of God. Luke is here describing Not only the ascension of Jesus into heaven, but a visual expression of his exaltation to the right hand of God in heaven. It's glorious. This very event was foretold by David, the prophet, in the king and prophet in Psalm 110 verse 1, where David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So God had foretold that one day a human descendant of King David would ascend to the throne. And this is, what, this is exactly what was taking place that day in the sight of his followers. Those who were there with Jesus that day saw something no other human being has ever seen. They saw a resurrected man rise up into heaven in a glorified human body. Why has no one else ever seen that? Because he's the only one who has. He's the only human being to enter into heaven in a glorified human body. And once there, he took his rightful place of power and authority at the right hand of the Father. So his exaltation also included his enthronement as Lord. Jesus, having humbled himself and having accomplished the work that he was sent to do, takes his Seat upon the throne prepared for him from which he will now rule over all creation as the God man. There is a man seated on the throne at the right hand of God who is ruling over all creation. You can't make this stuff up. Seriously, you cannot. It is beyond human comprehension. This truth is repeated over and over again by the New Testament writers. Let me share a couple of those examples with you. In 1 Peter 3.22, Peter writes, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels Authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So for the first time in the history of the universe. Angels, authorities and powers. It's not talking here about earthly authorities and powers. It's talking about principalities and powers. It's talking about both the good and the evil supernatural beings. For the first time. They're subject to the authority of a man. A glorified man who happens to be the Son of God. But nevertheless, a man is seated on the throne. Jesus, the risen, exalted God-man, is enthroned at the right hand of God. And all things are subject to His rule. Paul describes this in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 20 and 21, when he writes this, He, that is God, raised Him, that is Jesus, from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above, note that, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Here I believe that Paul is acknowledging not only the supernatural beings but also all power, authority, and dominion on the earth all earthly rulers, no matter who they might be. And above every name that is named. And not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay, This age will end when I do not know. No man knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. But this age will end, and a new age will dawn, and Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, will still be on the throne, and He will rule and reign in glory and in power forever. The father is in the highest position of authority and he grants to his risen son the second place of command at his right hand. And from that exalted position, the son exercises absolute authority over everything that has been created, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Absolute authority. According to our text, the father also gave to his son the name that is above every name. And that name, according to verse 11, is the name Lord. It's not the name Jesus. There's a lot of Jesuses in this world, both before him and after him. You know, the Hebrew for Jesus is what? Yeshua or Joshua, right? So anybody that's Named Joshua is actually named Jesus, if you will. Jesus is the Greek um, variation of it, okay? Actually, the Greek is Christos for Lord. So, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, it's not the name Jesus that's unique. That's not the title that's unique. It's the title Lord. Look at verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we are to confess now, right? We're to confess Him as our Lord now. And one day, everyone will. So the Father exalts the Son, and the Father gives to the Son the name or title that indicates his absolute authority. That of Lord. Kyrios. Lord over all creation. And this is reflected in how all of creation, every single created being, will one day bow down and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Note that. The Father The Son and the Holy Spirit are one. And yet each has its distinct role in this plan of salvation that God put into place before He even created the world in eternity past. God knew that sin would enter His creation, God knew that Adam would sin. And God knew that we would require a savior to pay the penalty for our sin. And so he sent his son. And once that mission was accomplished, he was exalted back to his rightful place, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and given the name that is above every name. Reminds me that right before he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, all authority and power has been given to me. So, Lord obviously refers to Jesus' deity and his sovereign, highly exalted authority. It confirms that he is the highest authority over creation. And ultimately, whether by choice or by force, every creature Both human and supernatural will submit to his authority. They will bow down and declare that he is Lord. Either by choice or by force. And as I said in Sunday school this morning, I think we would rather it be by choice than by force. When Jesus appears again, he is not coming as a savior. He's coming as a conquering king. And he will separate his sheep from the goats. The sheep he will welcome in to the new heavens and new earth. The goats, they will go to everlasting punishment all the while acknowledging he is Lord, but not enjoying that they finally realize that. Let's do it by choice. So Jesus is enthroned in heaven. He already possesses his divine title as Lord and his authority over all of creation. But, it is not yet the Father's time for that authority to be fully revealed and manifested in all of its glory. That will happen one day, at the end of this age, a day that the Father has fixed for the return of His Son in power and glory. In the meantime, we live in the already and the not yet. You've heard us tell you that time after time again. What does that mean? Well, already Jesus has completed the work required for our salvation. Already Jesus has risen from the dead in his glorified body. And already he's been exalted to his throne in heaven from which he rules and reigns. But not yet has his full glory, power, and authority been revealed. When it is you will want to have already believed and trusted in him and to have named him Lord. So how does this glorious text, how does it apply to each one of us? Well, we need to go back to the intent of the Apostle Paul In the context of his letter to the church in Philippi. Remember the goal. To which Paul is encouraging them. Is unity in the church. Because unity in the church is essential. For the church to accomplish its mission. Of reaching this world for Christ. Back in verse 27. Paul mentioned this goal. That. I may hear of you, that is the church, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the goal. That's what not only Paul wants to see, but that's what Christ wants to see in his church. Amen? He wants us, this local expression, of the body of Christ. This local church. He wants us standing firm. In one spirit. With one mind. Not my mind. The mind of Christ. Amen. Standing on the word of God. Standing on Christ as he's revealed himself. And striving side by side. For the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side. To see Christ proclaimed to see the gospel proclaimed to see men and women, boys and girls come to faith in Christ. That's what Paul wants for the church in Philippi. That's what he wants for us as well. And then in the following verses, especially chapter two, verses three and four, he told them how this unity could be made possible. I read that earlier. I'm going to repeat it because it's so important. Do Nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's really easy to do, isn't it? We wish. Our flesh tells us daily that it is more important than anything. In fact, our flesh wants us to worship it. That's the problem we had B.C., before Christ. We worshiped our own flesh. And it's hard to get out of that stinking thinking. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, live in true community, practicing true koinonia, ministering to others, giving to others, helping others, blessing others. Well, what about me? (laughs) Jesus will take care of you if you're truly His. And everything he gives to you, he gives to you to be a blessing to others. So, humility is the key to church unity. It's the key to the church accomplishing its mission. And it is the greatest example of humility to see what the Son of God did. He becomes our example to follow. And if we do, one day we too will be exalted by God. Wow. Jesus was exalted by the Father and all who follow the example of Jesus will be exalted by the Father. Don't take my word for it. Let's listen to what the word of God says. All those who follow our Lord's example of humility, of putting the interests of others before their own, have a promise of a great reward. Jesus himself promised, quote, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew twenty three twelve. Again, there's a choice here, right? And Jesus here is speaking not just to unbelievers, he's speaking to believers, right? If we exalt ourselves, what is our Heavenly Father going to do? He's going to humble us, right? He's going to discipline us. Why? Because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to exalt ourselves. God has humbled me over and over and over again in my life. Whenever I get too proud or too haughty, God intervenes. I know I've shared this example before, and I know you can't see it, but um, my right hand isn't whole. It's not like my left hand. You can see my thumb here, and you can see my thumb here, okay? Big difference. What happened? A very catastrophic motorcycle accident. How did that happen? It happened when my son was visiting here on Father's Day and we decided to go out for a father-son bike ride up Highway 1 and across through windy roads over the mountains and dad was going to keep up with his son because after all, I taught him how to ride. He had a much better motorcycle than I had and he was much younger than I was. But in my pride... I was going to show him that I could keep up with him. And God taught me a lesson. The hard way. So two surgeries later, I don't have a lot of grip in this hand. My own fault. Now, God spared my life. I went down on the only turn in about a five-mile stretch where there was a berm of dirt that stopped my bike from going over the cliff. But nevertheless, God needed to humble me, and he did. He did. I didn't ride like that after that day. (laughs) Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Listen to me. This is a guarantee. They may not be humbled in the way I was. They may not be humbled immediately. But anyone who exalts themselves, God will humble them. Today or someday. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted echoing that principle James wrote humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you James 4.10 and Peter wrote humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time 1 Peter 5.6 that doesn't mean he's going to exalt us in this life but it does mean that one day We will be raised from the dead in glorified bodies. We shall be like our Lord and we shall be with him forever. I don't know what more exaltation we would want than that. So our text is not simply a picture of humiliation and exaltation of the Son of God. It is actually a profound illustration of a divine principle that brings blessing and joy to God's humble servants. By God's grace, just as we are humbled with Christ, we will also be glorified with Him. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. He so desires to share His own glory with us. And that will be glorious. Amen? I want to read something to you that Jesus prayed just before He went to the cross. This is in John 17. Jesus is praying to the Father. And He's praying first for His disciples. And then in verse 20... He begins to pray for you and me. This is what he says. I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's he praying for there? Unity among his followers. That we would be so united to Christ that the world would look at us and say something's happened to them. That has to be something supernatural. Because there's no unity like that in the world. And then he goes on. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He prays to the Father for us to be one. And he prays to the Father that we would be glorified with the same glory. That he was. And so. My prayer. Is that Christ would be glorified in us. And that we would be glorified in him. And that that would result in us. Truly humbling ourselves. Thinking more highly of others. Working together to glorify Christ. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray.